0: You're listening to Gruesome and a Natural, a true crime podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Gruesome and a Natural. I'm Shelly. And I'm Eric. And this is episode 57. Yeah, hello, my gruesome addicts. Thanks for joining us for another episode. (laughs) You ready for this one? Just like the rest of them. Yeah, yeah, you are. All right. Kenneth Allen McDuff was born March 21st, 1946, at 201 Linden Street in the central Texas town of Rosebud. He was the fifth of six children born to John Allen and Addie McDuff. His father ran a successful concrete business during the Texas construction boom of the 1960s. His mother, Addie McDuff, ran a laundromat across from their home, and she absolutely adored her six children. She was a large, headstrong woman known for being overprotective of her children and would come running if they ever encountered trouble. Addie was notoriously known to carry a gun in her purse and was referred to as the pistol-packing mama. By the locals in Rosebud. Yeah. That her children's teachers feared her because she would storm into the school with like a huge temper anytime one of her children was accused of misconduct so she was one of those mothers to Addie, her children could do no wrong whatsoever and if someone accused them of anything the school was likely to blame the eldest son, Lonnie, was the bully of the family. He once pulled a knife on the school principal who subsequently oh, threw him down a flight of stairs. Damn, what the yeah. fuck kind of fucking school is this? I do not know. Places this? Moms packing fucking pistols, <laughs> yeah. kids pulling out shanks, getting tossed down the stairs. Yep. I like starting it. off crazy. <laughs> oh my god. Lonnie spoke with a speech impediment and referred to himself as Wuff and Tough Wanny McDuff. <laughs> <laughs> Wuff and Tough? Yes. Wuff and tough Wani McDuff. Addie McDuff was particularly fond of her youngest son, Kenneth. Though technically he wasn't the youngest of the children, she fond over him as her, quote, like baby boy. Even in his early teens, when Kenneth started getting into trouble, somebody else was always to blame in her eyes. Kenneth was known as a troublemaker and a bully like his older brother Lonnie. He was always the kid with a pocket full of money and new clothes, and he wrote a loud motorcycle to school nice yeah (laughs) though he had an average iq he didn't do well in school kenneth didn't seem to care about school and his only genuine friend was his brother lonnie by the fall of 1964 kenneth was 17 and spent most of his time you know causing trouble of course he broke into businesses and homes looking for things to steal and drove around town looking for girls but he wasn't looking for a girl to date he was looking for a girl to rape Kenneth confided in his brother that he had once raped a woman, slit her throat, and left her dying. Whether the story was authentic is uncertain, as the crime was never reported. Even at an early age, local law enforcement was all too familiar with Kenneth McDuff. Inevitably, he was arrested in 1965 for a string of more than a dozen burglaries. The sentence for his crimes totaled 52 years, but because he was only 18, the judge was lenient. Kenneth was allowed to serve his time concurrently instead of consecutively. The 52 years of prison was reduced to a meager three years, and he only ended up serving 10 months because they released him. Damn. I know. So wild. Again, one of those stories where he does all these crimes and he gets released from prison. Or jail, probably. The brief sentence gave Kenneth a sense of invincibility. The brief sentence gave Kenneth a sense of invincibility, and just eight months later, he moved on to much more heinous crimes. On a hot August night in 1966, Kenneth and his new friend, Roy Dale Green, were on their way to Fort Worth. Roy assumed they were on their way to, you know, drink some beers, look for girls, but Kenneth had a much more diabolical plan in mind. Roy Dale Green was a skinny 18-year-old who was impressed with and excited to be hanging out with 20-year-old Kenneth. Roy knew that Kenneth was a troublemaker, but when Kenneth told him he wanted to rape a girl that night, Roy didn't take him seriously. When Kenneth pulled into the parking lot of the baseball field in Everman, Texas, Roy had no idea what a mess he just got himself into. Kenneth pulled his car up next to a parked car near the baseball diamond. He could see that there were three teenagers inside the car. He reached under the seat and pulled out a Colt 38 revolver, got out of the car and walked up to the driver's side door of the parked car. Pointing the revolver at the window, Kenneth ordered the three teens out of the car. Inside the car was 16-year-old Edna Louise Sullivan, her boyfriend, 17-year-old Robert Brand, and 15-year-old cousin Mark Dunham. Kenneth led them to the trunk of the car and commanded them to get in. The three teens climbed in, and he closed the lid. Kenneth drove their car while Roy Green followed in Kenneth's car to an isolated area where they had stopped. Kenneth and Roy got out of the cars, and Kenneth turned to Roy and said, quote, We're going to have to knock him out, unquote. Kenneth opened the trunk and then pulled out Edna. The teen girl screamed as he dragged her away from her friends to his own car and locked her in his trunk. He then went back over to the young boys. Unable to see, Edna's terror only intensified when she heard six gunshots. Kenneth had emptied the revolver into the two other boys' bodies. When he could not close the trunk, Kenneth became frustrated and backed the car up to a fence and abandoned it with the boys' bodies hanging out of the back. Roy Green was obviously like totally in shock. They both got back into Kenneth's car and drove to another location where Kenneth pulled Edna out of the back of the car and raped her. After he raped her, Kenneth ordered Roy to rape her too. Then Kenneth yelled to Roy, quote, find something for me to strangle her with, unquote. Roy pulled the belt off of his pants and handed it to him, but Kenneth found something that he liked better. He had a broom in the back of his car. He raped her with the broomstick, then sat on her chest and held it across her neck. He leaned forward on the broomstick, putting more and more pressure on her neck until he crushed her throat. Kenneth threw her body over her shoulder, walked to the side of the dirt road, and tossed her body into the nearby bushes. Then the two just drove away. Wow, fucking horrifying. It's disgusting. I know. The next day, Roy Green was consumed with guilt and told his friends his friend's mother what you know what they had done. His friend's mother went to Green's mother, who subsequently convinced him to turn himself in. Green was arrested and led the police to the bodies, and Kenneth was quickly arrested as well. Roy gave the police the gun that Kenneth had, you know, buried next to uh, his garage, actually. Smart. Right. Yeah. (laughs) During the trial, Roy stuttered and stammered as he testified against Kenneth. Kenneth was cocky and nonchalant, taking the stand in his own defense. But, you know, obviously that didn't help the case. In November of 1966, a jury found Kenneth McDuff guilty on three counts of murder. Roy Green served 11 years in prison for his part in the murders, while Kenneth was handed three death sentences in the electric chair. In a normal world, this would be the end of the story, but this is not the end of the story. Mm -mm. Of course, right? On June 29th, 1972, after six years on death row, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that the death penalty, as it was then written, was a cruel and unusual punishment and was therefore unconstitutional under the Eighth and the Fourteenth Amendments. In an extraordinary event, all death penalty cases in the United States were commuted to life sentences. He got lucky. Kenneth was now eligible for parole and applied for it every time he was allowed. He was convicted of such heinous crimes. It was unimaginable that he would, you know, ever be paroled, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) The residents of Central Texas thought that such a vicious killer could never be paroled. Over and over he applied and he was repeatedly denied, actually. Fifteen years later, in 1987, Kenneth saw his chance. The Texas federal court ruled that the prisons of Texas were too, they were just like way too overcrowded, violating the civil rights of the inmates. I think that's funny. (laughs) Rather than spend money building more prisons, the court set population limits in the prisons, which led to a massive backlog of inmates being held in county jails across the state. Texas Governor Bill Clements made an unthinkable deal with the parole board In order to reduce prison populations, they were required to release 150 inmates per day. What the fuck? Right. How wild is that? Initially, the white-collar crimes were released, then the minor drug offenses. Within two years, the only people left in the prisons were murderers. This is when Kenneth saw his chance. Every time he applied for parole, Kenneth still had to appear before a parole board of three members, plead his case, and get two out of three votes in his favor. He had tried several times and was denied each time. In one instance, he actually received two votes, but it was ultimately denied when an unknown party argued against his release. In another instance, he tried to bribe a parole board official by offering him $10,000 each time he was denied, and that that didn't work work out for him. Outside the prison, Kenneth's mother was busy doing her part. She hired two well-known attorneys from Huntsville, paying them $2,200 to try to find a way to get her beloved son released from prison. What a loving mother. Yeah. Now she sounds <laughs> like a bitch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unbelievably, in 1989, after serving 23 years in prison, Kenneth was paroled. Wow. I of know. Course. Yeah, right? Of course. The two members of the parole board that voted to release him were James Cranberry, Granberry, not Cranberry, mm-hmm. Granberry, and Chris Mealy. Chris later blamed the tremendous pressure he was under from the government. James was later charged with Perjury in an unrelated case in order to serve six months in a halfway house. During those years, the Texas parole board set free 127 murders and 20 death row inmates. Oh what God. the actual fuck? Sounds like what's going on now. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I forgot about them. The people of Rosebud were in shock at the news of Kenneth's release. Some put bars over their windows, and many feared walking, you know, the streets of their tiny town without a gun. Like I don't blame them. Yeah. Right? Like fucking terrifying. Immediately after his release, Kenneth was required to visit his parole officer in Temple, Texas. After their first visit, the parole officer told police, quote, I don't know if it'll be next week or next month or next year, but one of these days, dead girls are going to start turning up. And when that happens, the man you need to look for is Kenneth McDuff, unquote. So that's scary as well. (laughs) The parole officer was right. Just three days later, after his release, the body of 29-year-old Sarafia, parker was found in a field 25 miles west of rosebud in temple the town that kenneth's parents had moved to while he was in prison though they had no evidence police suspected kenneth was responsible for the killing kenneth was known to be a racist as well just seven months after his release he harassed a young black man in rosebud yelling racial slurs at him and pulled a knife on him this violated obviously his parole and he was quickly sent back to prison but Kenneth knew how the you know the prison system worked, right? He's been there for a while. He knew about the overcrowding issues, and he was back on the streets just two months later, of course. After his release from prison, Kenneth enrolled at Texas State Technical College in Waco and briefly got a job as a cashier at a convenience store called Quick Pack. But working for a slowly $4 an hour did not satisfy him, and he quit just after a month. By the, su- I can't believe he actually went to like college and did yeah. all that. Like I was kind of surprised when I read that. By the summer of 1991, Kenneth had given up his feeble attempts at the straight and narrow life and continued his life of crime. Living in the college dorms, he started dealing and using drugs. He knew this violated his parole, but uh, Kenneth didn't give a shit. He spent his spare time picking up prostitutes in Waco and used them to satisfy his need for violent sex. In the late hours of October 10th, 1991, Kenneth picked up a young crack-addicted prostitute from Waco, Brenda Thompson, intent, you know, of killing her. Kenneth had Brenda tied up in the passenger seat of his red pickup truck when he noticed a police checkpoint up ahead. Brenda saw her opportunity and screamed as she raised her legs up to the windshield and began kicking and cracking the windshield like several times. When the police ran towards his truck, Kenneth hit the gas and crashed the roadblock. Several police officers had to jump out of the way and avoid being run over. He is just on one. Kenneth led police on a high-speed chase but escaped into the night by turning off his lights and driving the wrong way down a one-way street. After he escaped, he took Brenda Thompson down an old abandoned road into a wooden area near Route 84 where he raped, tortured, and murdered her. Her body wasn't found until seven years later. Wow. I know. Fuck this guy. Just a week later, Kenneth picked up another Waco prostitute. 17-year-old Regina Deanne Moore was last seen arguing outside a motel with Kenneth on the night of October 17th. Again, Kenneth tied her arms and legs with her own stockings, then took her to a remote area where he raped and murdered her. Her remains were not found until 1998. Two months later in Austin, 28-year-old Colleen Reed was washing her shiny new Mazda Miata convertible at a self-serve car wash. One thing that Kenneth learned in prison was to find, you know, a trusty sidekick, somebody you can, you know, rely on. That evening, he was driving around Austin with his uh, latest sidekick, Alva Hank Worley. As they drove past the car wash, Kenneth spotted Colleen and made a quick U-turn. Kenneth pulled his tan Thunderbird into the bay next to hers, got out of the car, and walked into Colleen's stall. Without a word, Kenneth grabbed her around the neck and lifted the tiny girl off the ground. When Colleen screamed, neighbors behind the car wash came out to see what was happening. They watched Kenneth throw Colleen into his car, and he and Alva drove off, again, driving the wrong way on a one-way street. The witness got a good look at Alva and alerted the police of his description and type and color of the vehicle that sped away. Right away, police suspected that Kenneth was behind the abduction, obviously. When police got the description of Alva, they began looking through Kenneth's like known associates and noticed that Hank Alva uh, immediately was like one of his well-known like drinking buddies like Roy um, Alva was timid and easily influenced by Kenneth Alva wasn't hard to find living in a motel with his 14 year old daughter when police knocked on his door he was already terrified with guilt though his guilt consumed him he's feared Kenneth you know wasn't quite ready to point a finger at him on the first visit to his hotel room Alva claimed he barely knew Kenneth It took a few visits to his motel room from police to persuade him to admit that what, you know, what had happened that night. He was there. They stopped by while he was having a barbecue by the motel pool with his daughter. And Detective Mike McNamara whispered in his ear, quote, Alva, you're hiding a kid killer. You know that. You're protecting a man who raped and brutalized and strangled a girl not much older than your daughter over there. Picture her on the ground, a broomstick across her throat, crying out for you for help, begging you to speak out, to do what's right, to save the life of some young girl, unquote. So it's like, that's like, you know, he's telling him like, you're, that could be your daughter. Yeah. And you're like hiding this information. <laughs> Alva said he and Kenneth were in Austin looking for drugs when Kenneth saw Colleen washing her car. When Kenneth lifted her off the ground by her throat, she screamed, quote, please not me, not me, unquote. Oh, scary. He then threw her in the back of their car and told Alva to hold her down as they sped off. When they got a few miles out of Austin, Kenneth got in the back with Colleen and commanded Alva to keep driving out of town. Kenneth tied her hands behind her back with her shoelaces, then took his cigarette and put it between her legs as she screamed. He beat her and he raped her. When he finished, he told Alva to change places with him and Alva raped her while Kenneth drove. Just monsters. Alva recalled, quote, I didn't want to have sex with her, but if I didn't have sex with her, I knew that he was going to get back there with her and beat her up some more and burn her cigarettes. He was taking the cigarettes and getting the fire real hot and burning her down there in the wrong spots, yeah, Just a fucking monster. Fuck? I hate this guy. I know. I hate this story. I know. This is horrible. When they got near the town of Belton, Kenneth pulled into a secluded dirt road and raped her again. Alva said, quote, he turned around. And he hit her, slapped her real hard and knocked her backwards. Then he took another cigarette and he lit it and he got the fire real hot and he burned her like that again, unquote. When she was able to stand, Alva claimed Colleen put her head in his shoulder and said, quote, please don't let him hurt me anymore, unquote. Just so sad. Kenneth was having none of that. He grabbed her by the neck and stuffed her into the trunk of the car and turned to Alva and said, quote, I'm going to use her up, unquote. Kenneth used the term often to mean that he was going to, you know, terminate her, pretty much kill her. Alva also said, quote, then he put her in the trunk of the car, closed the trunk down, and he takes me home. On the way home, he asked me for my pocket knife, and I told him I don't know where it is. Then he asked me, well, I need a shovel. Let me borrow a shovel. And I said, I ain't got one. He didn't say what he was going to do with it, but I knew exactly what he was going to do with it. He wanted to kill her with it. Ain't nothing I could do. Real scary being like that. If you can't help yourself, there ain't no way you're going to help anybody else. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it out of that. I'll always have a tear for that girl. I'll always cry for her, for what she went through. Nobody should be put through the type of torture, unquote. Even though he raped her, yeah. you're going to have a tear for like her. Like he did it because like he me. didn't want her to him to torture her anymore? Yeah. That's his excuse? Yeah. Fuck, get out of here. Fucking stop him. Exactly. Exactly. God. Kenneth was nowhere to be found, but police knew he was still in the area the following February when they found the body of another young prostitute. 22-year-old Valencia Joshua, a student at the same college that Kenneth had attended, was found on a golf course near the school. She had been strangled. The last time anyone had seen her, she was looking for Kenneth McDuff on the campus of her school. Like, Jesus. Then on March 1st, 1992, Melissa Northrup was working the night shift at the Quick Pack convenience store. She was a pregnant mother of two who knew the dangers of working the night shift, but needed to, you know, to pay her bills. She would regularly call her husband during her shift to let him know that she was okay. Late that night, Kenneth was cruising the streets looking for drugs when his tan Thunderbird broke down just a hundred yards from the quick pack. This was the same store. Remember that Kenneth had actually worked out for just a month. (laughs) Kenneth knew that the store was open 24 hours a day and had no security He also knew that there was a cute 23-year-old who worked the night shift, and he had told friends that that place could be easily robbed. When Melissa's husband didn't hear from her at 4 a.m. that morning, pretty much, he got worried and called the store. He repeatedly got no answer, so he drove to the store, but there was no sign of his wife. When police found Kenneth's car abandoned at the New Road Inn, just 100 yards away, their suspicions were confirmed. Kenneth was on a killing spree, and they started a massive nationwide manhunt. Knowing how Kenneth was with his family, they started by questioning his parents. As always, his mother stood by her beloved son and claimed that he was innocent, but then in that he didn't know, or that she didn't know where he was. Yeah. His father, however, was less loving. Uh, he said, quote, I don't know where he is. If you find him, you can kill him if you want to, unquote. Damn. His own dad, yeah. On April 26th, the badly decomposed body of QuickPack employee Melissa Northrup was found floating in a gravel quarry in Dallas County. Her hands were still tied behind her back with shoelaces, a signature, like I said, remember? Like, of Kenneth. Yeah. The big break came on May 1st when The Manhunt was aired on America's Most Wanted. The TV show was massively popular. Through the years, it had actually uh, helped capture 1,200 fugitives. This airing was, you know, no exception. Shortly after it aired, a man called from Kansas City, Missouri, claiming that Kenneth worked for a trash company under the assumed name Richard Fowler. Texas police called Kansas City police who looked up the name Richard Fowler in their it records. He was a pro golfer. Oh, my no. God. <laughs> Rick, I didn't even, yeah, I didn't even think about it. He's trying to frame him. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. That's sucking. That's hilarious. Texas police called Kansas City Police who looked up the name Richard Fowler in their records. Someone had been using the name and had been arrested and fingerprinted for soliciting prostitutes. The fingerprints matched that of Kenneth McDuff. Kenneth was arrested on May 4, 1992 as he was driving a trash truck to a landfill. When he was brought back to Texas, crowds of angry people gathered outside of the courthouse. Kenneth embraced the media and professed his innocence to the mob of cameras outside, often claiming that his trial was unfair boo Prosecutors had their strongest evidence against him for the abduction and murder of Melissa Northrup, so they decided to try that case first and you know, worry about the rest later. His mother, Addie McDuff, who is now 77 years old, was called as a hostile witness to testify against her son. She confirmed that her son used her credit card near the QuickPack store of the night of the abduction, putting him near the scene of the crime when it happened. Wow, I'm surprised that she even yeah. said that. Kenneth was livid that his own mother was being used by prosecution to testify against him, but there was more to come. The prosecution called two of his friends to testify that he had tried to enlist them in his plans to rob the Quick Pack store. At one point, Kenneth directed his anger at his own attorneys when he screamed at them, saying, quote, Why don't you get up and go sit on the prosecution side? You are helping them more than you are me, unquote. <laughs> Little bitch. <laughs> The murder of Colleen Reed had not been tried yet, and the prosecution called Hank Worley, also, you know, I was calling him Alva, to show that there was a signature to Kenneth's killings. Hank, also known as Alva, was brought to the courthouse in handcuffs. From his visibly shaking, it was clear that just being in the presence of Kenneth, like, terrified him. The ultimate nail in the coffin for Kenneth was when he insisted on testifying on his own behalf, despite his defense's team's wishes. They explained to him that under the rules of evidence, his past 1966 murders couldn't be mentioned in court if he wasn't on the stand. But if he took the stand, the prosecution could use that against him. But Kenneth wouldn't listen. Kenneth took the stand for two hours, rambling a nonsensical story of his whereabouts on the night of the murder. Meanwhile, the prosecution took advantage of their opportunity and the jury heard the complete story of his brutal killings of the teenagers in 1966. I'm getting like Ted Bundy vibes. where yeah. It's like he's trying to like, you know, testify to himself. Being uh, you know, all loud in court and just like. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The jury took four hours to return their guilty verdict on February 16th, 1993. His defense team requested leniency and asked for a life sentence. But the jury only took one hour to decide that Kenneth should die by lethal injection. Kenneth's trial for the murder of Colleen Reed started in 1994, although the bodies, you know, still had not been found. He was given a second death sentence. In television interviews from prison awaiting his death sentence, Kenneth continued to profess his innocence, even for the 1966 killings. In the months before his execution, investigators enlisted the help of a jailhouse informant to try to get Kenneth to give up the locations of the bodies, and their plan worked. Hell yeah. I know. In September 1998, the body of Regina... Deanne Moore, was found beneath a bridge on the side of the highway. Kenneth had buried her body in a shallow grave. Her hands were still tied behind her back with shoelaces, and her ankles were bound with stockings. The body of Brenda Thompson, who kicked um, Kenneth's windshield as he crashed through the roadblock, was found in a grouping of trees outside of Waco. She had been tied up, raped, and tortured. Kenneth only had two weeks before his execution, but he wasn't giving up the location of Colleen Reed. He told the informant that he didn't want to tell the cops because it was the last body and if he gave them everything they needed, they would, quote, take away my commissary rights and won't treat me right, unquote. I fucking hate this fucking loser. (laughs) With only two weeks to live, Kenneth's only concern was his, his own diminished rights and had no regard for the closure of his victims' families. Police met with prison officials and arranged to take none of his prison rights away. Presented with the assurance, Kenneth finally gave them directions to where, you know, he had buried Colleen's body. Thank God. Despite digging for hours exactly where, you know, he told them, they were unable to locate her body. That afternoon, in a covert arrangement, Kenneth was brought to the dig site. The body of Colleen Reed was found, thank goodness, on October 6, 1998. In Kenneth's final days, investigator John Moriarty spent over 40 hours interviewing him, trying to gain a deeper understanding of the psychopath's mind. In the time he spent with him, though he showed no remorse at all, Kenneth did admit to all eight murders and alluded that there may have been more. Kenneth McDuff was executed on November 17th, 1998. His family didn't claim his body and he was buried in a Huntsville prison graveyard with a tombstone that displayed only his death row number, X999055, and the day of his execution. Wow. Yeah. As a result of all this mayhem that Kenneth caused, an outcry from the public, the Texas parole system completely overhauled and the state spent $2 billion building more prisons. Damn. And that is the story of Kenneth McDuff, also dubbed as the Broomstick Killer. Ugh. I fucking hate these names. Yeah, that's disgusting. I know. How, like, uh, this guys it just, like, pisses me off how many times he went to prison and then got out. It's and just, like, the same old fucking story every time. Yeah. It's just, like, it's terrifying. And then he just went on to murder all the, And that guy yeah. was right. He was like, you're gonna find come across, like, all these dead women. Like, and that's what, exactly what happened. Yep. Like, if you just listen to this guy. <laughs> but, yeah, thank you guys for listening to another episode. And, uh, you know, rate, review, tell a friend. Give us case suggestions at gruesomennatural at gmail.com. And um, until next Monday, stay safe and be aware.